You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Welcome to episode 62 of the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell, and I'm ready to talk about the law. So, if you're a small business owner or an entrepreneur, before you got started doing business, talking to clients, taking orders, writing proposals, all that kind of stuff, I'm sure you put in place all the legal documents your business might need, right? Of course you didn't. Who does that? If you're anything like the majority of small business owners, you just got started. You had a rough plan of how you would grow, you rolled up your sleeves, you got busy, and hoped for the best. You're not alone. And my guest in this episode is here to help. Jeremy Stretton is a lawyer who specializes in helping small businesses and entrepreneurs navigate the murky world of the law. He gets it. Most of us are too busy trying to grow a business to think about everything we should have in place legally. He's here to tell us about some of the common traps business owners fall into. He's going to help us recognize when we need help. And the best part is he's going to do it all for free. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jeremy Stretton. Jeremy, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to guess that people like me, people who are entrepreneurs or small business owners, are not very good at recognizing the kind of legal help they need through the growth of their business. That's right, David. I think the biggest issue is that you don't know what you don't know. And that's something that I've recognized as being a lawyer for small to medium-sized businesses for around 15 years is that small and medium-sized business owners don't understand what they need to do. And so that's why we developed the Business Legal Lifecycle as a product, firstly a book and then an online tool to help business owners to understand what they need to do in their business from a legal perspective and to demystify the legal process because there seems to be a divide between clients and their lawyers where lawyers appear to want to think that they're smarter than their clients and that clients don't seem to understand what they're doing. So we're trying to demystify that process and make it a lot better for people in business. I like that, that, that idea of demystifying the process. And you're right, there, there is a kind of a barrier to going and getting legal help. We'll talk about those barriers in a minute, but I guess the main one is, is money. And most of us, when we start a small business or we, we have an entrepreneurial pursuit we're not dripping with money. We're trying to do it all ourselves. So bringing some legal advice on board, we just see that as a cost. That's exactly right. And that's a huge problem for small to medium-sized businesses in Australia and around the world. Uh, you know, we're going through an entrepreneurial revolution at the moment. There's going to be a billion businesses worldwide by 2020. And a lot of them can't afford the legal advice that a lot of big businesses get. It used to be 20, 25 years ago that you could start a business and you'd have a couple of $10,000 ten twenty thousand dollars to buy the legal advice that you needed. That doesn't exist anymore. And so what we've found is by setting out a better plan of when you should do things from a business point of view, it's much better and allows clients a much broader range of options as to what they're doing for the, from the legal perspective of their business. So 
You talked about your legal life cycle, which you spell out in your book, and there are 13 steps, if my memory serves me correctly. We're not, is that right? Is, are there 13? There are 13 steps. 13, That's right. right. Yes. We're not going to go through each of them step by step. What I'm going to ask you to do instead is talk about three key moments in a business. First of all, we're going to talk about what the type of things we need to think about legally when we're getting started. And then I'd like to talk about the kind of things we need to understand for when we're growing. You know, those good times in a business when we start to take on staff, lease premises, hire contractors, even selling our brand as a franchise. What do we need to know then? And then the third one I'm going to talk about, none of my listeners will ever need to know. We could talk about what to do when we hit a rough patch. Now, we're down on funds. We owe more than we're bringing in, struggling to pay our staff, all that kind of stuff. But before we get started on that, I want to start with your your view on it. I read in your book where you said when you were a young corporate lawyer, it was drilled into you that any business should have all of their legal paperwork in place before they start to do any trading. Is that for real? Is that really the advice you would give? Is that a realistic expectation? Absolutely. And and the reason for that is lawyers are risk adverse. By our nature, we're trained that way at law school. And when you're a business owner and a lawyer, you want to minimize the risk of getting sued. And so um, very often you have to tell your client to do everything before they can actually afford to do it because if you don't, then you get sued. That's why I wanted to be a little bit more realistic with what people can actually do and give them a plan of attack for the future and to be able to plan their business properly. I was about to finish it off and you finished it off very nicely. So you, you think all those things as a business owner, as a lawyer, but you understand in the real world, most of us don't think that way. Exactly right. Yeah, most people in the real world can't think that way and don't have the money to think that way, especially these days when you can start a business with a laptop, an idea, and an internet connection. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk about those three things, getting started, growing, and when we've hit a rough patch. And during it, I'd love to hear some of your gruesome stories and some of your feel-good stories as well. And I would really like you to talk about those themes of the common traps people fall into at each of these stages and when we can work out, when we should know, what are the signs that I need some some help? Mm-hmm. All Sounds right, so good. getting started. I know it's, I was about to ask you, think of the typical business, but there is no typical business, is there? I mean, what is the typical business? I guess maybe, you know, service providers, that's a fairly typical kind of a small business. Oh, that is, but there's plenty of other product businesses and other yeah. types of businesses as well. So yeah. I don't think there is one typical mm, business. But, silly, silly point. <laughs> but most businesses, yeah, there are a lot of commonalities between a lot of businesses. Mm-hmm. All right. So what are the things that most people don't know about that they should be doing when they get started? Probably the most important thing that I think is missed is actually working out where you're going. Now, having some sort of goal in mind and putting something in place to do that, I know that's not legal advice, but that's something that's missed quite often in the startup of of a business. People get so excited in the idea of starting their business and they don't actually plan of where they're going. And if you don't have a plan of where you're going and you don't know where you get, how you're going to get there, then how are you ever going to get there? So that's probably the, the big thing that I see missed in the beginning of a business. But probably from a legal perspective, Probably the biggest thing that's missed is advice and understanding of the structure that you're going to put your business in. So people can start businesses as companies, private companies. They can start their businesses as trusts. They can start their business as partnerships or they can start their business as sole traders. And what I've found is that there's so many business owners out there who just don't understand exactly the ramifications for the entities that they're getting into. And they also don't get advice from all the people they should get to because we come back to what we talked about before about the money. And people don't want to get advice from their lawyer, their accountant, their financial planner, their business mentors, because that costs them money. So what 
what we try and do is try and get a, a holistic advice and an understanding of all the client's needs. Yeah, when I say earlier that you don't know what you don't know, the same goes for the consultants at that phase as well. If you're a lawyer, you may not understand the tax implications for your client structure that you're setting up and vice versa. If you're an accountant, you might not understand the legal implications for the client structure as well. So that's a massive area that people get fall down in. So you, you talk about starting with the end in mind and that's not you, your language. I just stole Stephen Covey's language there. That's his uh, f- habit number three of, of highly effective people is to start with the end in mind. Great advice. Hey, you mentioned something there that is obviously relevant to me. So I started my business as a sole trader. You know why I started it that way? Because that was the most the box that I recognized the most when I signed up for my ABN. I had no idea what I was doing. I was I'm not a businessman per se. I'm a I'm an expert in le- leadership. I'm a leadership consultant who was starting a business so I could do that. And I've often wondered as I hear our politicians debate company tax and I hear the fact that company tax is much lower, I think, why am I a company? Why am I a sole trader? So what would someone like me who started as a sole trader need to have in place to change into a company? And when would it be a smart decision to do that? Well, I guess the issue with being a sole trader is that you're personally liable for everything that goes on in your business. So companies were set up around 100 years ago back in the UK, and they were set up as a separate legal entity to avoid liability from the individuals behind it. So they were deliberately set up to protect people in business and to allow people to be more innovative and start more businesses. Be riskier. Exactly, to be a bit more risky, and it allows people to to do a lot more in their business. So if I was to change from a sole trader to a company, not only would I pay less tax, I would also not bear personal responsibility for the damage my company does? Well, I'm going to give a great lawyer answer to that question and say it depends. Okay, great. (laughs) And it does depend because you will eventually pay the same amount of tax depending on how much money you take out to yourself. Pay myself a a salary. A salary or if you take dividends, Mm -hmm. depending on how you structure it, you will eventually pay some tax and often it will be very close to what um, you would have paid as an individual. But it's more from my perspective as a lawyer, the asset protection that is important. Because yes, if you, as a director of a company, you would be generally free from any liability for any negligent advice that you might give. Now, there are exceptions to that, of course, if you do something deliberately false, if you do something that is misleading or deceptive, then of course you can be held liable. But having it set up as a company is a much better structure from that asset protection point of view moving forward. All right. So when we start a business, we've got to think about the structure. And and it sounds like that's no easy matter to wade through. So right from the start, someone like me who has started a business without any legal advice has missed the boat there. We could, lots of us could be set up with the wrong structure to start with. There are over a million, probably 2 million companies, uh, businesses in Australia that are operated by sole traders. Mm -hmm. So yes, but it's not the end of the world because you can always move into a, a company structure. And What's happening in your business that's a sure sign that you should change the way your business is structured? When you're starting to earn more income. So when you're, you know, if you're earning you know, over the 100,000 mark, 75,000 mark, then you're starting to have a business that's got some scale. You're starting to have a business that has some risk because there's no um, reward without risk in life. And so you, as you're starting to earn more money, then that's the point in time when you probably need to start thinking about putting that in. The other thing to have, to, the other point would be maybe when you're starting to get more clients and more diverse clients of people that you don't know and that you don't you don't trust as much, then that would be another point that you should think about doing it as well. 
this feels like a legal session. This is fantastic. I love it. All right, great. This feels like I've, I've got you in to consult for me. And that would be a consultation in your world. Is that what it's called? That's right. A yes, consultation. A consultation you yes. can see I'm a complete <laughs> native. Uh, na- I'm very naive around this stuff. All right. So great. We've thought about the legal structure. People go wrong. What's a, Give me a horror story. Tell me where it could really bite you on the backside. Well, I'll tell you a story. It's a company that's a bit more advanced than a startup, but they didn't think about their structures. So it was a franchise business. It ran um, franchises of coffee machines around, of coffee vans. Were they franchisor or franchisee? Franchisor. So they were the franchisor. They operated a coffee machine business around Southeast Queensland, actually, and in other states in Australia, but primarily here. And what they did is they set up their company and set up a company to trade their business, but then put all of the assets that they bought in their director's name. Now, because all the assets were in the director's name, that meant that if he got sued, that he would be personally liable and all his assets could be attacked. So he spent years building up this great value worth of assets, upwards of about 2 or $3 million, unencumbered, that he owned all in his own name. One day, he got sued. Now, franchises and franchisors, they are liable to exposure for the comments that they make and the how they get people into their business. He got sued for misleading and deceptive conduct in his franchise business. What that meant was that he was at risk of personally of liability because he had personally made these statements. He went to court. I wasn't acting for him at the time, but he got judgment against him for about $600,000. So that was in a company structure, but he was personally liable for that $600,000 as well. He got some great barbecue advice and even advice from his lawyers to go bankrupt. Now, he was a friend of one of my relatives and they said, don't go bankrupt until you go and see Jeremy. So we sat down and on a Monday morning because he was going to go bankrupt that afternoon. As a way of escaping all of his responsibility. That's right. So if you go bankrupt, just as a quick quick note for your listeners, then most debts you can walk away from. But if he's- if he's got a couple of million dollar in assets and he and he's being hit for six hundred grand, why would he go bankrupt? Well, he and didn't sorry, think. Let me finish. Let, I'll let you finish the story. <laughs> well, he didn't realise what going bankrupt meant. Mm. Now his advisors hadn't asked him what assets he owned, and he didn't understand what um, going bankrupt would mean. So we sat down and started doing an assets and liabilities statement, just a simple one on a sheet of paper in the in the meeting room in my office, and we realised that he had properties, he had the business all these assets that he was going to lose if he went bankrupt. And the moment that the light bulb went off in his head of what he was about to do and what he was going to lose, it's a moment that I'll never forget because he didn't take the right advice. He didn't structure his affairs properly. Had he structured his affairs properly, he wouldn't have had that problem. Now, hopefully he wouldn't have gone bankrupt anyway and he would have paid his debts. And he has now paid back his debts completely and now owns all his properties on income, but this all finished about three years ago. But that's an example, and it is, an, it is an extreme example, but it is an example that happens all too often of people who don't understand their structure, and when they get sued or when they're liable for a debt, that they end up getting or could lose a lot of things by not just understanding fundamentally what they're doing. Great stuff. How are you going with it? Good. Great. Awesome. It's good. So interesting. So what, what sort of percentages when we talk about all of the different business structures in Australia, is, is it a really big percentage that starters, sole traders, and at some point in their life change their structure? Yes. In fact, the majority of businesses in Australia at the moment are sole traders and they should be changing over to companies or trust structures if they can 
because that will give them a lot better protection. But but definitely the, the vast majority, I don't know the exact percentage, but the vast majority are sole traders at the moment in Australia. Right. Didn't realise that. And as, of course, trusts are under fire at the moment politically, that's another story entirely. But interesting in itself. Hey, look, before we go on to the second type of the chunk of advice we're going to talk about, which is when your business is growing, is there anything else that's really important that we're thinking about back at that conception stage? We've talked about the structure and that's been a light bulb for me, even just that little bit of information. What else is really important at that conception stage? I think probably the next most important is insurance. So in any business that you're starting, you need to get some sort of insurance. Now, the the level of insurance and the type of insurance will depend on a lot of factors. It will depend on whether you're leasing premises for your business to run. It will depend on whether or not you have certain professional indemnity insurances for the business that you're operating for, or whether, if say, if you're a builder, and there's a lot of builders around there, around at the moment, they have their own insurances that need to be in place. So getting the right insurance is really important. And you need to, you know, once again, this is where we need to have consultants actually talk to each other. So one thing I'm very big on is when a client comes to see me is not just talk to me about the insurance, but talk to their insurance broker, talk to their other advisors to make sure they're getting the right, the right insurance. A lot of businesses have professional associations. Talk to them because they'll know what kind of insurances the type of people in their industry have. I'm guessing there are some horror stories related to having the wrong type of insurance. Walking around thinking you've done the right thing, getting insurance, and then after years of being in business, something goes wrong one day and all of a sudden you discover you are not insured for the right type of stuff. Yes. And one of the big ones was the floods. So 11 or not. 2011. 2011. Mm. The, the floods start were in Queensland. And there are a lot of businesses that were caught out because there are a lot of insurance policies, and I won't name names, but there are a lot of insurance policies that didn't cover flood. And what happened was that they were the businesses were operating, they had flood insurance, or they thought they had flood insurance, they had insurance for everything else, and they weren't paid out on it for their claims. And I'll, I'll give one example of a client who ran a printing business on the north side of Brisbane. He had thought he had flood insurance, and in fact, the insurance company paid out on a claim for flash flooding off the street one day because he had a premises that was sunk down under, under the ground. He was lucky that day because he was in the business and he was able to sandbag it and there was only minimal damage done. So the, there was a, a claim for a few hundred thousand dollars and the insurance company paid out. When the big floods happened in Brisbane, a lot of that rain happened over a weekend. Friday night, it rained. He didn't go back into the business on Monday morning, came in and everything was underwater. Now, printing business has millions and millions of dollars worth of equipment, big printing presses to do everything. This gentleman had $12 million worth of damage to his business. It wiped his business out and the insurance company refused to pay because he didn't have specific flood insurance. So what was his future financially? Well, his business folded because he wasn't able to fund. The litigation against the insurance company was so much that he wasn't able to fund it. Yeah. He wasn't, and he, his business folded. Unfortunately, his business went into liquidation. He went bankrupt. Is now you know getting his feet up again and starting again. He's past his bankruptcy period, but that's an example of thinking that you've got the right insurance, but not making sure that you have the right insurance. So there were many insurance companies that had that policy, and it was this, the distinction between runoff water and rising water from a from a river. A very silly distinction, but something that was a big problem in, in southeast Queensland when we had those floods, and a big problem for these types of businesses. For those of you listening who, who are not in Southeast Queensland, uh, back in 2011, we had some massive floods here in Brisbane and word got around, I wasn't someone who was affected by the floods, but word got around 
very quickly that there were some insurance companies who were paying out and some who weren't. And the major thing, and I don't know how true this is, it sounds like it's true from what you just said, they were getting people on on what was obviously a loophole. You were insured if a river rose and, and took over your business, but you weren't insured if the water came up through a drain from a river. And that's a real fine line when you're talking about a flood that covered half of Brisbane. Some people missed out and lost their businesses, lost their home. Tragic circumstances. If you want to inject some energy and leadership expertise into your next event, why not invite David to speak? He'll get things moving. I'm talking to Jeremy Stretton about law and what we should know when we're running our small business or entrepreneurial pursuits. Jeremy, we've talked about what we should know when we're getting started. Let's talk about the sort of things we should understand when things are good and our business is growing. We're taking on staff, leasing property, all that kind of stuff. What are the things that usually catch people out at that stage? I think probably the biggest one is bringing on staff. Mm. It's something that as anyone who's owned a business or operated a business or brought on staff will know, there's a lot of technical requirements that we have to meet as business owners. And there's a lot of things that people don't understand that they need to do when they bring on an employee. So that's probably when you're starting to grow, it's something that you'll get very excited about. You're starting to grow, you'll start to bring on employees, but you're probably not prepared for all the things that you need to do. And it's something that I see business owners fall down a lot. So someone who has grown a business to the point where they're bringing people on, that's good, right? They've done well. You would think that they're not silly people So they're thinking rationally about the process. What is it then that catches them out? What surprises most people that they didn't know in terms of bringing someone on? I think that probably the biggest thing is, and in the business legal life cycle, we put bringing on employees as phase four, which is just after you start having clients. And in the book, I talk about the fact that when you're bringing on employees, that's the time when you've actually got a viable business. So you've got some clients and, and you're actually starting to get a viable business going. But What I found is that a lot of business owners don't understand what they're doing from bringing on employees because they might not understand their legal requirements, what forms they have to provide them, what their minimum wages are, what their contractual rights are. And that's a big problem in Australia because we seem to change the law surrounding bringing on employees depending on which government's in power from time to time. And it's something that we really need to make sure that people understand because when they don't, that's when they get themselves into trouble. So, all right, give us a horror story. Tell us about someone you've seen fall foul of the law through no ill intent, but they just didn't know what they were doing and they didn't get the right advice. So, I'll give an example of someone that I've just dealt with recently, and that's a real estate agent. Again, I won't name any names. Uh, (laughs) Please don't. (laughs) Don't need the legal trouble. I can't do that. But a real estate agent who employed an agent to work in their business and to list properties for them, they did their own contract of employment. Now, in the real estate game, there's a lot of law and a lot of case law about enforcing restraints of trade because it's a highly competitive area. There's many different properties, many different real estate agencies out there. So if you're going to have a restraint of trade that is properly enforceable, you need to have someone that's actually going to be a true estimation of your loss is the legal terminology that we use to make sure that you can actually stop an employee from going out there and doing work against you. In this case, the client had set up their own employment contract with a generic restraint that they found off the internet. Online, of course. Of course, online. Yeah. And can I say on that point, there's lots of great information you can get online, but I think 
you need to always run that past your, your lawyer and your advisors to make sure that it's actually right. But he had done that. He didn't run that past his advisors. And when the employee left, he was left in the situation without enforceable restraint of trade. The employee took his listings and the client wasn't able to do anything. Now, had he, had he come and got proper legal advice at the beginning when he was starting to bring on employees, which he's doing now, and that was a meeting I had today, he was we were able to put the right steps in place to be able to protect him and protect his business so that these employees don't basically take the, the IP that he's built up and go and use it in their own, for their own gain because it is very hard to enforce that kind of restraint on an employee. All right. So as I'm growing my business, the legal obstacle course around bringing people on, employees, is one of the things that I nearly, really need to pay attention to. What else? What else trips people up as they're growing quickly? Understanding when they should protect their intellectual property is another huge one. This is one of the main reasons that we were coming up with the business legal life cycle. Protecting intellectual property costs you thousands of dollars. Most startup businesses don't do it because they can't afford it. So one of the reasons that we developed the business legal life cycle was to look at where that could be done realistically. And But what happens is that a lot of business owners, they forget about doing it. So they get so caught up in working in their business, they forget to work on their business. And in forgetting to work on their business, they forget about their intellectual property. And what happens is that when someone sees that you've got a great idea that's earning good money, often they'll go and adopt it. Now, that might not be a bad thing from an innovation and a development of an idea point of view, but if you've come up with something that's unique and that's something that is different to what is out there in the market, you might want to protect that for a period of time. And what you can do is open yourself up to attack if you don't um, protect yourself properly. Have you seen some people lose vast sums of potential money through people taking their their ideas, stealing their ideas? Yeah, loads of them. And, and probably the big one is names. There's an example, not a client of mine, but there's an example of a restaurant in Melbourne that had started up, had been trading for a number of years, had a successful business. They, I can't remember the exact name, and but an international competitor, a well-known chef from the UK came over and his line of stores had a very similar name. Business had to shut down their their name of their business because the bigger company came in. Now, if, that, if they had just trademarked their name once they'd worked out that they had a minimal viable business, they would have been able to protect themselves and that wouldn't have that problem. There are thousands of other examples like that, but that's a very prominent one that was in the news probably about two or three years ago. Hey, that re- reminds me of what I suspect is an urban myth. That story in reverse about Burger King from overseas coming to Australia and apparently the urban myth goes that there was a very small hamburger joint called Burger King, which is why they couldn't call it that here in Australia, which is why we have Hungry Jacks. Is that true? I'm not sure. All right. <laughs> it would just be an urban myth. All right. I like it. So bringing people on, thinking about, oh, and actually, let's stick with this for a while. Give me some common examples. So you've talked about the name is when something that we should register. What about other IP that people are commonly developing and just not realizing that they should get a trademark on that so it's theirs? Mm. Well, trademarks and names, I think probably another good one come from a recent example of, of a client that I'm acting for. They make screens, so dividing screens for houses. And they have some unique designs that are very nice and lovely. They entered into a partnership with a company and then, as unfortunately happens from time to time, that partnership broke up. No one had any discussions over who owned what IP in those designs. And these are all unique designs. So they hadn't protected any of those of those designs. 
And the client found out six months later that that person had gone and sold their designs to a large hardware chain in Australia and that then they now stock it. So the client now is protecting all their designs through um, registering designs to protect their business and their, the new designs moving forward. Now, that was an unfortunate situation, but it does happen far too often and people need, should be aware of their rights and what they should be protecting with their intellectual property that they're generating because that's the real value in their business. This kind of thing must be so sad for people because they've gotten over that bump. We all know the stats about businesses that fail and they don't get to this point that we're talking about where you're growing and you might fall into one of these traps because you're growing so quickly. Nice problem to have, but you've still got to have the right legal advice or it can really undo all the hard work that you've done. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the big issues that we see that people do. They they work their heart and soul. They, their blood, sweat and tears are all over the business. And then someone comes in and usurps them. Now, that might still be able to run a good business, but they might not have had the success that they wanted to. And that's why we've tried to be more realistic and have more trigger points for clients and business owners as to when they should do things from a legal perspective. You would have seen some of it close up. It must be heartbreaking to watch someone, a genuine person who has, as you say, put their heart and soul into something and just a a legal oversight because that's not their game has cost them everything. Very sad. All right. Talking about these businesses that are growing, and I know a lot of the listeners, a lot of the, our listeners to this podcast are running their own business and are going through this. They've got to know what they're doing when it comes to bringing staff on. They've got to know what they're doing when it comes to protecting their IP. What else do we have to think about at that vital stage of growth? Probably the next most important thing is thinking about expansion. So if you want to expand, where do you want to expand to? Now, expansion is not for everyone. There's a lot of business owners out there who, who will, the idea of expansion is scary to them and they don't want to do it. Now, by expansion, I'm generally talking about maybe opening up another premises, franchising your business, licensing your business. There are all options that you can take to expand your business. However, you need to be ready to actually do that and to have the right shocks in place for your business to be able to expand. Otherwise, one of my mentors once said to me that if if you have a problem in your business and you expand, that problem multiplies time and time again. And it's so true. And I've seen it with so many clients. So, If you want to expand, great, but make sure that you get some advice about what you need to put in place to prevent the common pitfalls that people get into, which is not fixing the errors in their business. That's great advice. If you've got a problem in your business and you expand, that problem multiplies. Very sage advice. All right, what else? Is there anything else that we should talk about here that's really important at this stage before we move on to the bit that no one wants to be in? (laughs) I think probably the last point would be bringing in investors. So that's phase six. Again, it's like expansion. Bringing on investors into your business is not for everyone. And the reason for that is that when you bring on an investor, you're bringing someone into your business that you may not know that well and may have different ideas of doing of how you should operate your business. Can I give an example oh, here? Oh, please. So, so an example that I, I like to give in this stage is a client of mine who ran a building business. And he started his business and he was operating fairly successfully for a number of years, but he started to dream big. He had more clients coming to him than he knew what to do with, and he needed some cash in his business. So he was at home one day having lunch with his parents-in-law and asked, and was talking about the problem with, with the parents-in-law. And the father-in-law said, I'll lend you some money and I'll invest in your business. Great, borrowing money from your in-laws. What a great <laughs> idea. No alarm bells there. It, yeah, well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he gladly took the money, not thinking about the problems that, that would come. 
And then the father-in-law started to notice on social media, because they were friends on social media, that he was out socializing a lot more. Now, for him, he was out there building his client relationships because as you've expanded a business, you need to start getting more on the client relations side than actually working in the business. But the father-in-law didn't understand how to run a business. He had been in education all his life. And that's fine, but he didn't understand. And they never had a conversation as to what the money would actually be used for and where he was going. Now, if they had sat down and had the conversation, I am sure that it would not have become a problem. And their Christmases would be a lot more friendly than they were for a little while there when there was a lot of animosity because the the father-in-law thought that the son-in-law wasn't working hard in the business when he actually was. And what sort of problem did it become? It became quite bad to the the point where they had to borrow the money from a a bank to pay back the father-in-law move him out of the business because it got to the point where they were coming to me, the the son-in-law was coming to me to talk about what he could do to get, you know, to to protect himself from his father-in-law. And the only thing he could do really was to get him out of the business. And so we managed that transition out and we had a good chat to him, but it wasn't for him. Investing in the business wasn't for him. And it would also, he wasn't the right type of investor for, for the young man in his business. All right. Now, these two that we've talked about so far, starting a business and growing a business because things are going well, they're exciting. They're fun to talk about. Even when we're talking about the pitfalls, this third one is something that we don't want to think about, but we should. We should know what's going on when we've hit a rough patch. What do we look out for when times are tough and there are signs all around us that we need legal help? What are those signs? Because I'm imagining it's even tougher to search for legal advice, to pay for legal advice at this point when you're going broke. That's exactly right. And unfortunately, we see it happen all the time. As I've said a couple of times, people are so busy working in their business, they're not busy working on their business. So I think probably the big keys are not having enough money in the bank account to pay your bills, not having the the work coming in that you thought that you were going to have in coming in. You need to identify these things early. Now, Often in business, when you, especially when you're in there working in the business on a day-to-day basis, you won't see these things coming because you are so- In the detail. In the detail, doing the work that you, you miss the big things. So one thing I'm very big with my clients, especially the ones that I advise from a business sense, is to make sure they're spending at least a couple of hours a week looking at the business from a, a top level, a 50,000-foot view, and understanding what's actually happening in their business to be able to identify it. Because you're right, when those problems come up, and they come to us for help, often it's too late. Now, sometimes we can get them through it. Sometimes we could, you know, if they've got piling debts, massive credit cards, if they've got massive debts with lots of suppliers, then we can manage that through We can manage them through that, but it costs them money. It costs them a lot of emotional energy as well because one of the things I often say to my clients when they're looking in this kind of situation or even when they're looking at just litigating because they feel that they've been wronged, is there's a huge emotional toll that comes with litigation. And I think of a, of a client who he was, an, he was a business owner and he'd got into a dispute with another business. I won't go into too much detail. Come on, uh, give us some names though. I'm only joking. <laughs> Essentially, there was a dispute over the quality of the product that was delivered. And it was arguable in all fairness as to whether or not there was actually a, a fair argument or not. My client was so adamant that he was right. But guess what? So was the other guy. And- in that time, some words that were said to me in the last week of law school always ring true with me. The principle of the thing only makes lawyers rich. And to go even further than that- But it's the principle of the thing. <laughs> well, as I say, it makes lawyers rich. That's great for, yeah. for, for, for someone who owns a law firm, but it's not great for the emotional toll on an individual in a business. And it really isn't because 
what we see is when people go through these problems, if they haven't addressed them and, and taken that broad look at their business, what we see is that they it becomes too much. I've had clients have nervous breakdowns. I've had many, many divorces, unfortunately, where you're trying to manage businesses. I've had many, you know, just problems with families because people don't manage their time properly. So you've got to take a step back from your business on at least a weekly basis. I would say daily. That's what I do. But at least a weekly basis and make sure you understand where everything's going. And if you're not sure, go and talk to your advisors. Talk to your accountant. That Your accountant should be your first port of call on anything financial. Are we a litigious society? I wouldn't say that. I would say that we're actually probably not a litigious society, certainly compared to America um, and the reputation that they have. It's something like, the stats are something like, of all disputes that there are in business, about 1% will ever start proceedings in court. And then 1% of those would actually ever go to a trial. So there's a lot of disputes and people, especially when people get into these, the rut of disputes, that they sometimes feel like, oh, it's all, there's always disputes. Their perception of what was going on around them is, is that there must be lots of disputes. But I would say that we're not a litigious society, that we're actually pretty good at resolving things. As I say, 1% of all disputes go to court and only 1% of those ever go to trial, which means that the vast majority are being settled by people rationally sitting down and having a chat. <laughs> yeah, great. I had I, someone on the show here, Andrew Mewing, a number of episodes ago. He was on the show to talk about the fact that he didn't make the Olympics. It's a, an episode called, uh, and we're not all Olympians, but he happens to be a lawyer these days. And he was saying that people will go to vast expense to avoid admitting they were wrong. Oh, that's absolutely right. And they will, and I suppose it's just human nature. And as an advisor, I need to be, and lawyers need to be, able to tell their clients when they're wrong and to also provide them with that commercial advice as to when they should quit. Because as I said, the principle of the thing only makes lawyers rich. So as things start to go bad in our business, do people typically have their head in the sand and they either don't know how bad it is because, as you say, they're not spending time on their business, they're spending time in their business, or they just don't want to know the bad stuff and they just think if they just put their head down and keep working harder and harder, it will all go away? I think it's probably a little bit of both. The ostrich effect, unfortunately, does afflict a lot of people and often they will yeah, put their head in the sand and not want to address it. And sometimes they'll just not want to, they won't know that it's happening. And that's, it's quite sad because it does cause a lot of problems with businesses and a lot of business failure comes from the fact that people don't address problems as early as they, as they should and get the advice from people to help them solve those problems. And does it all come down to money? Does it come down to, look, you are you owe more money than you've got coming in you're not, your business is not growing. It's not keeping up with your debt. You are going to go broke. Is, is that normally where crunch time comes? That's normally where crunch time comes. Um, often it can be a bad decision that might be made. So you might make a bad decision about where the business is going. You might make a bad decision about bringing on an employee that, that causes you a lot of harm. That is a, a small example. It doesn't happen very often, but usually it is bad decisions and a lack of money that does cause most of the problems in business. All right. You've given us a lot of great advice for right way back when we're starting our business. We've got the idea and we want to get started. We need to think about the way that we structure it and a few other things that you talked about, about when we're growing, protecting our IP, for example, bringing people on in a smart way and the way that we expand. And then sadly, we talked about when business is not going well and what we need to consider there. Before I ask you my final couple of questions, have you got any more pearls of wisdom for us to consider? I think probably the, the most important thing is to get the right advice, but make sure that you're talking to your whole team. 
having a team of consultants that actually talk to each other, respect each other, and aren't just out there to try and earn as much money as they can is very important. So if you get that advice and if you make sure that your accountant's talking to your lawyer and they're talking to your other consultants and also that they're asking questions, you should never hold back a bit of information from your consultant, your lawyer or your accountant because you don't think it's relevant. Let them decide that it's relevant or whether it's relevant or not because that's not a decision for you to make. It's a decision for your consultant to make because, once again, you don't know what you don't know and people often struggle to give the right advice if they don't have all the facts. In fact, they can't. All right, so keep your team informed. I've got two questions there. You talk about your team of consultants, accountant and lawyer, and this amazing thing that you're talking about where they will actually work together for you in your business. Is, is that a real thing? And do, you know, so do you have clients come to you and say, hey, this is my accountant. Here's his phone number. I want you to work with him to make sure I'm not getting in any trouble. I'm more proactive than that. Yeah. In my law firm, yeah. I will actually say, what's your accountant's name? And I'll get the response, oh, you don't need to speak to them. And I'll say, give me your yes, accountant's name and let me talk to him or her yeah. and let me have the conversation about what we actually need to do. And it's amazing how just that quick five-minute, 10-minute conversation will result in a much better outcome for the client. Now, nine times out of 10, we probably don't change our advice, but- it makes sure that everyone's on the same page, everyone's discussing everything because as an advisor, especially as a legal advisor, if I set up a structure for someone, the last thing I want is a year down the track when the client's getting their tax return to be told by the accountant, oh, the that structure's all wrong. Move. Yeah, that was a bad move. Everyone's got to own the decision and make sure that it's all right. So when you call the accountant the first time, are they usually quite surprised? It's like, oh, my client's lawyer's calling me. I do get that reaction quite often. Yeah, yeah. So right. the, 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 Often consultants don't talk, so right. they are surprised by that. But I find that they appreciate the fact that, number one, you've picked up the phone to call them, and number two, that you're asking for their input, and number three, that you're providing value for their client because that's what, at the end of the day, we're in business to help people solve problems, and that's what we're trying to achieve, and that's how we can do it. That seems to me one of those incredible, magically simple things that you're adding value with just right there with that really basic idea that is overlooked by so many people. Great idea. And, and hey, before I get on to my last couple of questions, this idea of holding back information, what's the juiciest bit of information someone's held back from you? So I've got a client or had a client who I had to let go as a client. You had to sack them as a client. I had to sack you them as a client. That? Yeah. Well, sometimes you have to because sometimes they, they're more trouble than they're worth. And this particular client didn't tell me that he was getting divorced and that had a serious impact on his business and the advice that we were giving because we were structuring a new a new structure set up for us, for him and his business. And he withheld the information that there, that he was getting divorced because he thought he knew best. He thought that if I didn't know that information, that I wouldn't be able to, so I would be able to set up the business to basically exclude the ex-wife and the other people from any claims. What people don't understand about family law is that basically in Australia, all of the information goes into one big pot yeah. and, and all the assets go into one big pot and it's split up equally. But I had to sack him as a client because he was only trying to get the best of bad situation. But in a really dumb way. In a really shot dumb himself way. in the foot. Absolutely. And that's not the kind of person <laughs> I want to work with. Yeah. All right. Good stuff. Hey, before I ask you your, the very last question, I had a guy on the show ages ago, back in the mid-40s, a futurist, Anders Norman, Anders Sorman Nielsen. It was a fantastic conversation. So he gave me this little formula, this basic formula for industries that are likely to be disrupted. He talked about industries that have one or two of these three things where there's the consumer experiences a lot of friction, 
where there are inefficiencies that cause stress for the customers or there's a non-value-adding middleman. Now, no non-value-adding middleman in your industry, but there is some of that consumer experiencing a lot of friction because whether it's right or wrong, the idea exists that it's expensive to go and see a lawyer. And as soon as I call you and start talking to you, you are charging me 400 bucks an hour. That's friction. That means that you're open to being disrupted. What's happening in your industry? Well, I think probably you're absolutely right. Law is ripe for disruption. Again, another reason why we built the Business Legal Lifecycle was to be more realistic and provide better advice. In our industry, there's a lot of things that are changing. Uh, one of the things that I'm very big on is fixed fee pricing. So if you ring me up for legal advice, you don't, the clock doesn't start running. I don't start charging on time. We work out what we're going to do. We provide a quote based on a fixed fee and we do the work based on that fee. That's a huge disruption. That's happening more and more with law firms and I think that's a great thing because time costing is a terrible way of doing business and a terrible business model. There are other ways that the law has been disrupted. There's been a big push over many years for specialization. Again, we don't necessarily agree with that. That's why Business Legal Lifecycle does cover so much of a business and the life cycle of their business. People don't like, and business owners don't like coming to one lawyer for one bit of advice, then going to another stovepipe lawyer for another bit of advice. They want to come to a lawyer and get their advice. So the industry is ripe for disruption. There's a lot of interesting products that are coming out in the future. I think AI is going to be fascinating in the law because there's going to be a a whole change in the way that actual advice can be given. I don't think that- You and I are doomed, mate. We're doomed to a life of sitting by the pool and having a robot do our work for us. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Wouldn't it be nice? <laughs> hey, good stuff, mate. I, I, I've really enjoyed our chat. And I've got to say to my listeners there, this is a man who's a very- a very honest looking face. When I need a lawyer, I'm coming to you, Jeremy. <laughs> and uh, just tell us before we go, my last question, where can people find what you do? And I believe you've got an offer for the listeners about getting a, a bit of a free stock take on their legal needs. That's right. Yeah. So the Business Legal Lifecycle, there's the website, the Business Legal, oh, sorry, businesslegallifecycle.com.au. Um, you can also find us on Facebook and we run a twice weekly show about law and business going through some of the fundamentals and also interviewing people and giving tips about what needs to happen in business. And that's on our Facebook page, which is Biz Legal Lifecycle. So you can have a look at that. But the offer I wanted to make today, and as a thank you for getting me on the podcast, is we've developed a tool which takes about five to 10 minutes and it places you in the business legal lifecycle. So it might find you in phase five. It will tell you what you need to do in phase five. It will tell you what you've missed from the first four phases and it will give you a plan for the future. So it gives you three really good bits of value for your business so that you can understand what you've done, why you've done it, and also where you're going in the future. What you should have done. What you should have done mm-hmm. gives you an opportunity to fix those problems and then tells you what you need to do for the future because I, I think that's probably the most important part. So that tool, the placement tool, is something that we've we've developed. We're very proud of it. We think it's a, it's a great little product. And if you, the listeners would like to take a go at that, if they go to businesslegallifecycle.com.au slash test, that takes you to the, the test page. You go in to, there's a place where you can enter your details and also a coupon. If you enter Team Guru Pod, so T-E-A-M-G-U-R-U-P-O-D, that will give you a free test of the Business Legal Lifecycle. Fantastic. Can I do it? Absolutely. I'm going to do it. That's awesome, Jeremy. Hey, look, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our chat tonight. It has been enormously enlightening. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me.
That was Jeremy Stretton. Who would have thought that a conversation about law and legal traps could be so enlightening? I guess it's just the fact that it's so relevant to those of us who run small businesses and are entrepreneurs. Jeremy spoke there about a special offer to Team Guru listeners. I, of course, will put all of the links you need for that on the podcast page for this episode. And as always, I'll share all the lessons I took from my conversation with Jeremy on that same page. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the principles of team and leadership to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.